Hello, and welcome to episode 18 of Bearskin's Bayonets and Bravery, Notes from the Guards Museum. My name is Andrew Wallace and I am the director of the museum. In the last episode, I gave you a potted history of the Guards Armoured Division, from its inception to its final parade in 1945, when they reverted to their more usual role as infantrymen. Guardsmen played their part in airborne forces, with the 1st Parachute Battalion eventually being reduced to an independent company with a pathfinding role, which was then finally disbanded in 1975. However, in 1965, G Squadron of the SAS was formed, consisting of officers and men of the Household Division. Since then, they have served in Europe, the Middle East, the Far East, and also in the South Atlantic, carrying on the traditions set by David Sterling between 1942 and 1945. Since 1945, battalions of the Guards have fought in Palestine, Malaya, Egypt, Cyprus, Aden, Kenya, Bahrain, Mauritius, the Cameroons, Borneo, Belize, the Falklands, the Balkans, Iraq, Afghanistan, Sierra Leone and a host of other places. This week we will look at two very different Guards officers and we will examine some of the exhibits that we have covering the post-Second World War period. So let's start by looking at the first of these two eminent guardsmen, a man who played a pivotal role in achieving victory over the Germans, namely a stalwart grenadier in the shape of Lieutenant General Boy Browning. Frederick Arthur Montague Browning was born on the 20th of December 1896 at his family home in Kensington. The house was later demolished to make way for an extension of Harrods, allowing him to claim in later life that he had been born in its piano department. He was the first son of Frederick Henry Browning, a wine merchant, and his wife Nancy. From an early age, he was known to his family as Tommy. He was educated at West Down School and at Eton College, which his grandfather had attended. While at Eton, he joined the officer training corps. Browning sat in the entrance examinations for the Royal Military College Sandhurst on the 24th of November 1914. Although he did not achieve the necessary scores in all of the required subjects, the headmasters of some schools, including Eton, were in a position to recommend students for nomination by the Army Council. The headmaster of Eton, Edward Littleton, put Browning's name forward in this way and he entered Sandhurst on the 27th of December 1914. He graduated on the 16th of June 1915 and was commissioned as a second lieutenant into the Grenadier Guards. Joining such an exclusive regiment, even in wartime, required a personal introduction and to be interviewed by the regimental commander, Colonel Sir Henry Streetfield. Initially, Browning joined the 4th Battalion Grenadier Guards, which was training at Bovingdon Camp. When it departed for the Western Front in August 1915, he was transferred to the 5th Reserve Battalion. In October 1915, he left and joined the 2nd Battalion at the front. The battalion formed part of the 1st Guards Brigade of the Guards Division. Around this time, he acquired the nickname Boy. For a time, he served in the same company of the 2nd Battalion as Major Winston Churchill. Upon Churchill's arrival, Browning was given the job of showing him the company's trenches. When Browning discovered that Churchill had no greatcoat, Browning gave Churchill his own. Browning was invalided back to England with trench fever in January 1916 and, although only hospitalised for four weeks, did not rejoin the 2nd Battalion at the front until the 6th of October 1916. Browning fought at the Battle of Pilken Ridge on the 31st of July 
the Battle of Pell Capella on the 9th of October, and the Battle of Cambrai in November. He distinguished himself in this battle, for which he received the Distinguished Service Order. The order was generally given to officers in command above the rank of captain. When a junior officer like Browning, who was still only a lieutenant, was awarded a DSO, this was often regarded as an acknowledgement that the officer had only just missed out on being awarded a Victoria Cross. His citation reads, For conspicuous gallantry and devotion to duty, he took command of three companies whose officers had all become casualties, reorganised them and proceeded to consolidate, exposing himself to very heavy machine gun and rifle fire. In two hours he had placed the front line in a strong state of defence. The conduct of this officer, both in the assault and more especially afterwards, was beyond all praise, and the successful handing over of the front to the relieving unit as an entrenched and strongly fortified position was entirely due to his energy and skill. He was awarded the French Croix de Guerre on the 14th of December 1917 and was mentioned in dispatches on the 23rd of May 1918. In September 1918, Browning became an ADC to General Sir Henry Rawlinson, commander of the British Fourth Army, after which he returned to his regiment. He was promoted to the temporary rank of captain, appointed adjutant of the 1st Battalion Grenadier Guards, then part of the 3rd Guards Brigade, in November 1918. Browning was granted the substantive rank of captain on the 24th of November 1920. He retained his post as adjutant until November 1921, when he was posted to the Guards Depot at Caterham. In 1924, he was posted to Sandhurst as adjutant. He was the first adjutant during the Sovereign's Parade of 1926 to ride his horse, named the Vicar, up the steps of the Old College and to dismount in the Grand Entrance. There is no satisfactory explanation as to why he did it. After the Second World War, this became an enduring tradition, but since horses have great difficulty going down steps, a ramp is now provided for the horse to return. Other members of staff at Sandhurst at the time included Richard O'Connor, Miles Dempsey, Douglas Gracie and Eric Dorman-Smith, with whom he became close friends. Browning relinquished the appointment of adjutant at Sandhurst on the 28th of April 1928 and was promoted to major on the 22nd of May. Following a pattern whereby tours of duty away from the regiment alternated with those in it, he was sent for a refresher course to the small arms school before being posted to the 2nd Battalion Grenadier Guards at Purbright. His workload was very light, allowing plenty of time for sports. Browning competed in the Amateur Athletics Association of England Championships in hurdling, but failed to make the Olympic selection. He did, however, make the Olympic five-man bobsleigh team as brakeman. An injury incurred during a training accident prevented his participation in the bobsleigh at the 1924 Winter Olympics, but he competed in the bobsleigh at the 1928 Olympics in St. Moritz, in which his team finished 10th. Browning was also a keen sailor, competing in the Household Cavalry Sailing Regatta at Chichester Harbour in 1930. He purchased his own motorboat, a 20-foot cabin cruiser that he named Idrisil. In 1931, Browning read Daphne du Maurier's novel, The Loving Spirit, and, impressed by the graphic depictions of the Cornish coastline, he set out to see it for himself in his boat. Afterwards, he left the boat moored in the River Foy for the winter, but returned in April 1932 to collect it. He heard that the author of the book that had so impressed him 
was convalescing from an appendix operation and invited her out on his boat. After a short romance, he proposed to her, but she rejected this as she did not believe in marriage. His friend Dorman Smith then went to see her and explained that their living together without marriage would be disastrous for Browning's career. They were married in a simple ceremony at the church of St Willow, Lantigloss by Foy, on the 19th of July 1932, and honeymooned on Idrisil. Their marriage produced three children, two daughters, Tessa and Flavia, and a son, Christian, known as Kitts. Browning was promoted to Lieutenant Colonel on the 1st of February 1936 and was appointed Commanding Officer of the 2nd Battalion Grenadier Guards. The battalion was deployed to Egypt in 1936 and returned in December 1937. His term as Commander ended on the 1st of August 1939. He was removed from the Grenadier Guards Regimental List but remained on full pay. On the 1st of September he was promoted to Colonel with his seniority backdated to the 1st of February 1939 and became Commandant of the Small Arms School. In May 1940, eight months after the outbreak of the Second World War, Browning was promoted to Brigadier and was given the command of the 128th Hampshire Infantry Brigade. It was part of the 43rd Wessex Infantry Division, which was then commanded by Major General Robert Pollock. The brigade was a territorial army unit which was preparing to join the British Expeditionary Force in France. This was preempted by the Dunkirk evacuation and the subsequent fall of France in June, and the division instead assumed a defensive posture. In late February 1941, after handing over the brigade to Brigadier Manley James, Brownie succeeded Brigadier the Honourable William Fraser, a fellow Grenadier Guardsman and an old friend, to command the 24th Guards Brigade Group, whose objective was to defend London from an attack from the south. In November 1941, Browning was promoted to the acting rank of Major General and appointed as the first General Officer Commanding of the newly created 1st Airborne Division. The division, initially comprised of the 1st Parachute Brigade under Brigadier Richard Gale and the 1st Air Landing Brigade under Brigadier General Hopkinson. In this new role, he was instrumental in the parachutists adopting the Maroon Berry and he assigned an artist, Major Edward Sego to design the parachute regiment's now famous emblem of the warrior Bellerophon riding Pegasus, the winged horse. However, Browning designed his own uniform, made of Barathea with a false Yulin-style front, incorporating a zip opening at the neck to reveal regulation shirt and tie. Worn with medal ribbons, collar patches and rank badges, capped off with grey kid gloves and a highly polished guard Sam Brown belt and a swagger stick all of which were worn in the field. He qualified as a pilot in 1942 and henceforth wore the Army Air Corps wings, which he also designed himself. Browning supervised the newly formed division until it underwent a prolonged period of expansion and intensive training, with new brigades raised and assigned to the division and new equipment tested. Though not considered an airborne warfare visionary, he proved adept at dealing with an apathetic war office and an objectionist air ministry and demonstrated a knack for overcoming bureaucratic obstacles. As the airborne forces expanded in size, the major difficulty in getting the 1st Airborne Division ready for operations was a shortage of aircraft. The Royal Air Force had neglected air transport before the war and the only available aircraft for airborne troops were conversions of obsolete bombers 
Air Chief Marshal Sir Arthur Harris, in particular, felt that the 1st Airborne Division was not worth the drain on Bomber Command's resources. When Prime Minister Churchill and General George Marshall, the US Army Chief of Staff, visited the 1st Airborne Division on the 16th of May 1942, they were treated to a demonstration involving every available aircraft of No. 38-wing RAF, 12 Whitleys and 9 Hawker Hector biplanes towing General Aircraft Hotspur gliders. At a meeting on the 6th of May chaired by Churchill, Browning was asked what he required. He stated that he needed 96 aircraft to get the 1st Airborne Division battle ready. Churchill directed Air Chief Marshal Sir Charles Portal to find the required aircraft and Portal agreed to supply 83 Whitleys, along with 10 Halifax bombers, to tow the new, larger General Aircraft Hamilcar gliders. In July 1942, Browning travelled to the United States, where he toured airborne training facilities with his American counterpart, Major General William Lee, who soon took command of the 101st Airborne Division. Browning's tendency to lecture the Americans on airborne warfare made him few friends among the Americans who felt that the British were still novices. Browning was envious of the Americans' equipment, particularly the C-47 Dakota transports. On returning to the United Kingdom, he arranged for a joint exercise to be conducted with the 2nd Battalion, 503rd Parachute Infantry Regiment. In mid-September, as the 1st Airborne Division was coming close to reaching full strength, Browning was informed that Operation Torch, the Allied invasion of French North Africa, would take place in November. When he found that the 2nd Battalion of the 503rd Parachute Infantry Regiment were to take part, Browning argued that a larger airborne force should be utilised as the vast distances and the comparatively light opposition would provide opportunity for airborne operations. The War Office and the Commander-in-Chief Home Forces, General Sir Bernard Paget, were won over by Browning's arguments and agreed to detach the 1st Parachute Brigade, now under Edward Flavel, from the 1st Airborne Division, and place it under the command of Lieutenant General Dwight D. Eisenhower, who would command all Allied troops participating in the invasion. After it had been brought to full operational strength, partly by cross-posting personnel from the newly formed 2nd Parachute Brigade under Brigadier Ernest Down, after it had been brought to full operational strength, the brigade departed for North Africa at the beginning of November. The result of British airborne operations in North Africa were mixed and the subject of a detailed report by Browning. The airborne troops had operated under several handicaps, including shortage of photographs and maps. All the troop carrier aircrew were American, who lacked familiarity with airborne operations and in dealing with British troops and equipment. Browning felt that the inexperience with handling airborne operations extended to Eisenhower's Allied Force Headquarters and that of the British First Army, resulting in the paratroops being misused. He felt that had they been employed more aggressively and in greater strength, they might have shortened the Tunisian campaign by some months. The 1st Parachute Brigade had been called the Rote Teufel, or the Red Devils, by the German troops that they had fought. Browning pointed out to the brigade that this was an honour, as distinctions given by the enemy were seldom won in battle, except by the finest fighting troops. The title was officially confirmed by General Sir Harold Alexander, commander of the Allied 18th Army Group, and henceforth it applied to all British airborne troops. On 1st of January 1943, Browning was appointed 
a companion of the Order of the Bath. He relinquished command of the 1st Airborne Division to Brigadier George Hopkinson, formerly the commander of the 1st Air Landing Brigade, in March 1943, to take up a new post as Major General Airborne Forces at Eisenhower's headquarters. He soon clashed with the commander of the U.S. 82nd Airborne Division, Major General Matthew Ridgway. When Browning asked to see the plans for Operation Husky, the Allied invasion of Sicily, Ridgway replied that they would not be available for scrutiny until after they had been approved by U.S. 7th Army Commander Lieutenant General George Patton. When Browning protested, Patton backed Ridgway, but Eisenhower and his Chief of Staff, Major General Walter Bedell Smith, supported Browning and forced them to back down. Browning's dealings with the British Army were no smoother. His successor as commander of the 1st Airborne Division, Major General Hopkinson, had sold the British 8th Army commander, General Sir Bernard Montgomery, on Operation Ladbrook, a glider landing to seize the Ponte Grande road bridge south of Syracuse. Browning's objection to the operation were ignored, and attempts to discuss airborne operations with all the corps commanders elicited a directive from Montgomery that all such discussions had to go through him. Browning concluded that to be effective, the Elburn advisor had to have equal rank with the army commanders. In September 1943, Browning travelled to India where he inspected the 50th Parachute Brigade and met with Major General Ord Wingate, the commander of the Chindits, an airborne special force. Browning held a series of meetings with General Sir Claude Orkinlek, the Commander-in-Chief India, Air Chief Marshal Sir Richard Pearce, the Air Officer CNC, and Lieutenant General Sir George Giffard, the GOC Eastern Army. They discussed plans for improving the airborne establishment in India and expanding the airborne forces there to a division. As a result of these discussions, and Browning's subsequent report to the War Office, the 44th Indian Airborne Division was formed in October 1944. Browning sent his most experienced airborne commander, Major General Ernest Down, to India as GOC of the 44th Division. Down's replacement in command of the 1st Airborne Division by Montgomery's selection, Major General Roy Urquhart, an officer with no airborne experience, rather than Browning's choice, Brigadier Lathbury of the 1st Parachute Brigade, the decision was to become controversial. Some saw him as a ruthless, manipulative empire builder who brooked no opposition. Browning assumed a new command on the 4th of December 1943. His directive number one announced that the title of the force is Headquarters Airborne Troops, 21st Army Group. All correspondence will bear the official title, but verbally it will be known as the Airborne Corps, and I will be referred to as the Corps Commander. He is promoted to Lieutenant General on the 7th of January 1944, with his seniority backdated to the 9th of December 1943. He officially became Commander of the 1st Airborne Corps on the 16th of April 1944. 1st Airborne Corps became part of the 1st Allied Airborne Army, commanded by Lieutenant General Lewis Brereton in August 1944. While retaining command of the Corps, Browning also became Deputy Commander of the Army, despite a poor relationship with Brereton and being disliked by many American officers. His disagreement with Brereton over a risky operation caused him to threaten resignation, which, due to differences in military culture, Brereton regarded as tantamount to disobeying an order. Browning was forced into a humiliating backdown. 
when first airborne corps was committed to an action in operation market garden in september 1944 browning's rift with brereton had severe repercussions browning was concerned about the timetable put forward by major general paul williams of the ninth troop carrier command under which the drop was staggered over several days and not to make two drops on the first day this restricted the number of combat troops available on the first day he also disagreed with the British drop zones proposed by Air Vice Marshal Leslie Hollingshurst of No. 38 Group, which he felt were too distant from the bridge at Arnhem, but Browning now felt unable to challenge the airmen. Browning downplayed evidence brought to him by his intelligence officer, Major Brian Urquhart, that the 9th SS Panzer Division Hohenstaufen and the 10th SS Panzer Division Frunsberg were in the Arnhem area, but was not as confident as he led his subordinates to believe. According to Major General Urquhart, GOC of the British 1st Airborne Division, when informed that his airborne troops would have to hold the bridge for two days, Browning responded that they could hold it for four, but later claimed to Urquhart that he had added, but I think we might be going a bridge too far. Browning landed using gliders with a tactical headquarters near Nijmegen. His use of 38 aircraft to move his corps headquarters on the first lift has been criticised. Half of these gliders carry signal equipment, but for much of the operation he had no contact with either British 1st Airborne Division at Arnhem or Major General Maxwell D. Taylor's US 101st Division at Eindhoven. His headquarters had not been envisaged as a frontline unit and the signal section that had been hastily assembled just weeks before lacked training and experience. In his pack, Browning carried three teddy bears and a framed print of Albrecht Dürer's The Praying Hands. James Gavin, who in mid-August 1944 succeeded Ridgeway in command of the 82nd Airborne Division, who in turn received promotion to command the US 18th Airborne Corps, was highly critical of Browning, writing in his diary on the 6th of September 1944 that he unquestionably lacks the standing, influence and judgment that comes from a proper troop experience. His staff was superficial. Why the British units fumble along becomes more and more apparent. Their tops lack the know-how. Never do they get down into the dirt to learn the hard way. After the war, Gavin and his staff were criticised for the decision to secure the high ground around Grusebeek before attempting the capture of the Val Bridge at Nijmegen. Browning took responsibility for this, noting that he personally gave an order to Jim Gavin that although every effort should be made to effect the capture of the Grave and Nijmegen bridges as soon as possible, it was essential that he should capture the Grusebeek Ridge and hold it. After the battle, Browning was awarded the Order of Polonia Restituta, second class, by the Polish government in exile but his critical evaluation of the contribution of Polish forces led to the removal of Major General Stanislaw Sosabowski as commanding officer of the Polish 1st Independent Parachute Brigade. Some writers later claimed that Sosabowski had been made a scapegoat for the failure of Market Garden. Montgomery attached no blame to Browning or to any of his subordinates, or indeed acknowledged failure at all. He told Field Marshal Sir Alan Brooke, the Chief of the Imperial General Staff, the professional head of the British Army, that he would like Browning to take over the 8th Corps in the event that Sir Richard O'Connor, the GOC, was transferred to another theatre. Events took a different course. 
Admiral Lord Louis Mountbatten, the Supreme Allied Commander, Southeast Asia Command, had need of a new Chief of Staff, owing to the poor health of Lieutenant General Henry Pownall. Brooke turned down Mountbatten's initial request for either Lieutenant General Archibald Nye or Lieutenant General John Swain. Brooke then offered Browning for the post and Mountbatten accepted. Pownall considered that Browning was excellently qualified for the post, although the latter had no staff college training and had never held a staff job before. Pownall noted that his only reservation was that I believe Browning is rather nervy and highly strung. For his services as a corps commander, Browning was mentioned in dispatches a second time and was awarded the Legion of Merit in the degree of commander by the United States government. Browning served in Southeast Asia from December 1944 until July 1946. Mountbatten soon came to regard him as indispensable. Browning had an American deputy, Major General Horace Fuller, and brought staff with him from Europe to SEAC headquarters in Kandy, Ceylon. SEAC headquarters developed an adversarial relationship with that of Lieutenant General Sir Oliver Lees, Allied Land Forces Southeast Asia. Matters came to a head when Lees attempted to replace the victorious commander of the 14th Army, Lieutenant General Sir William Slim. In the resulting furore, Lees was relieved instead. Slim took over and was replaced as 14th Army Commander by Browning's friend, Lieutenant General Sir Miles Dempsey. For his services at SEAC, Browning was created a Knight Commander of the Order of the British Empire on 1st of January 1946. His last major military post was as Military Secretary of the War Office from September 1946 to January 1948. In January 1948, Browning became Comptroller and Treasurer to Her Royal Highness the Princess Elizabeth, Duchess of Edinburgh, although he did not officially retire from the army until the 5th of April 1948. This appointment was made on the recommendation of Lord Louis Mountbatten, whose nephew, Philip Mountbatten, was now the Duke of Edinburgh. As such, Browning became the head of the princess's personal staff. He also juggled other duties. In 1948, he was involved with the 1948 Summer Olympics as Deputy Chairman of the British Olympic Committee and Commandant of the British team. From 1944 to 1962, he was the Commodore of the Royal Foy Yacht Club. On stepping down in 1962, he was elected the first Admiral. Upon the death of King George VI in 1952, the Duchess of Edinburgh came to the throne as Queen Elizabeth II, and Browning and his staff became redundant, as the Queen was served by the large staff of the monarch. The domestic staff remained at Clarence House, where they continued to serve the Queen Mother. The remainder were reorganised as the office of the Duke of Edinburgh, with Browning as treasurer, the head of the office, and moved into a new larger office at Buckingham Palace. Like the Duke they served, the office had no constitutional role, but supporting his sporting, cultural and scientific interests. Browning became involved with the Cutty Sark Trust, set up to preserve the famous ship and the administration of the Duke of Edinburgh's award. In June 1953, Browning and Du Maurier attended the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II. Browning had been drinking since the war, but now it had become chronic. This led to a severe nervous breakdown in July 1957, forcing his resignation from his position. For his services to the Royal Household, Browning was made Knight Command of the Royal Victorian Order and was advanced to Knight Grand Cross of the Royal Victorian Order in 1959. He retreated to Menabili, the mansion that had inspired Du Maurier's novel Rebecca, 
which he had leased and restored in 1943. In 1960, he was appointed Deputy Lieutenant of Cornwall. He died from a heart attack at Menabili on the 14th of March 1965. We have a rather interesting photograph, signed by General Bernard Montgomery, in which he is seen with two Russian field marshals, namely Marshal Zhukov, who commanded the Russian army, and his chief of staff, Marshal Zokolovsky. They are seen inspecting a guard of honour found by the 1st Battalion Grenadier Guards in Berlin in 1945. As you would expect, even though the guards were in battle dress and having fought their way across Europe, they were outstandingly smart. You will also recall that it was the Welsh Guards who won the road race to liberate Brussels. We have on display the tiny uniform, correct in every detail, of a regimental sergeant major of the Welsh Guards, which goes on to the statue of the Mannequin Peace in the centre of Brussels every September. The Mannequin Peace is the depiction of a rather cheeky male cherub peeing into a fountain. The uniform is put on the statue on the anniversary of the liberation every September to remind the good people of Brussels who gave them their freedom. The skirt of the tunic is very carefully pinned back so as not to impinge the lad's full flow. More formally, the city of Brussels presented a banner to the Guards regiments who took part in the liberation. And not only do we have a photograph of Princess Elizabeth inspecting the banner at Windsor Castle after the war, we also have the banner itself on display. We also have a photograph of Princess Elizabeth, who you will recall was appointed Colonel Grenadier Guards on her 16th birthday before the outbreak of war, inspecting the regiment just after the war in Caterham Barracks. She is escorted by Major, later Major General, James Bowes Lyon, who was cousin of the Queen Mother. How times change. We are used to seeing guardsmen in Afghanistan wearing protective body armour in sweltering temperatures. We have a picture on display of a patrol being undertaken by guardsmen in Aden during the Radfan uprising, in which they can be seen wearing ammunition boots, shorts, a floppy hat and nothing else. I was informed by a former Coldstream Guard sergeant that the floppy hats had a protective force field which kept you safe. We have on display a floppy bush hat with two vertical red stripes on the side, showing it was worn by members of the 2nd Battalion Coldstream Guards. We also have pieces of a blindicide rocket which was fired at the Irish Guards when they served in Aden. The Aden emergency was an armed insurgency by Yemeni nationals during the Cold War against the Federation of South Arabia a protectorate of the British Empire, which now forms part of Yemen. Partly inspired by Nasser's pan-Arab nationalism, it began on the 14th of October 1963 with the throwing of a grenade at a gathering of British officials at Aden Airport. A state of emergency was then declared in the British Crown Colony of Aden and its hinterland, the Aden Protectorate. The emergency escalated in 1967 and hastened the end of British rule in the territory which had begun in 1839. On 30th of November 1967, British forces withdrew and the independent People's Republic of South Yemen was proclaimed. We now come to examine the second eminent guardsman, Captain Robert Lawrence Nyrak. Earlier in the podcast, you heard me refer to the many places where guards fought post-Second World War. One place not mentioned was Northern Ireland. Operation Banner which lasted for some 35 years, 
was never actually a theatre of war, but in fact a policing operation. However, tens of thousands of guardsmen fought in the province during the Troubles, one of whom was Robert Nyrak, a Grenadier Guards officer. Nyrak was born in Mauritius, then a British Crown colony, to an English mother and a father of French Mauritian origin. His mother was Anglican and his father was a Catholic who worked as an eye surgeon. Nyrak was the youngest of four children. He attended preparatory school at Gilling Castle, a feeder school for Ampleforth, a Catholic public school, which he attended a year later. Whilst at Ampleforth, he excelled academically, was head of his house and played rugby for the school. He became friends with the sons of Lord Killanin and went to stay with the family in Dublin and in Spiddle in Connemara, County Galway. Nyack read medieval and military history at Lincoln College, Oxford, where he excelled in sport. He played for the Oxford University's Rugby Second 15 and revived the Oxford University Boxing Club, with which he won four blues in bouts with Cambridge. He was also a falconer, keeping in his rooms a bird that was used in the film Kess. He left Oxford in 1971 and entered the Royal Academy Sandhurst under the sponsorship of the Grenadier Guards, into which he was commissioned on graduation. After Sandhurst, he took postgraduate studies at the University of Dublin before joining the regiment. Nyrak's first tour of duty in Northern Ireland was with Number 1 Company, the 2nd Battalion Grenadier Guards. The battalion was stationed in Belfast from the 5th of July 1973 to 31st of October 1973. The Grenadiers were given responsibility first for the Protestant Shankill Road area and the predominantly Catholic Ardoin area. This was a time of high tension and regular contact with paramilitaries. Ostensibly, the battalion's main objectives were to search for weapons and to find paramilitaries. Nyrak was frequently involved in such activities on the streets of Belfast and was a community relations activist in the Ardoin Sports Club. The battalion's tour was adjudged a success with 58 weapons, 9,000 rounds of ammunition and 693 pounds of explosives taken and 104 men jailed. The battalion had no casualties and did not shoot anyone. After his tour had ended, he stayed on as liaison officer for the replacement battalion, the 1st Battalion, the Argyll and Sutherland Highlanders. On their first patrol, Nyrak narrowly avoided the impact of the explosion of a car bomb on the Crumlin Road. Rather than returning to his battalion, which was being transferred to Hong Kong, Nyrak volunteered for military intelligence duties in Northern Ireland. Following the completion of several training courses, he returned to Northern Ireland in 1974, attached to four Field Survey Troop Royal Engineers, one of the three subunits of a special duties unit known as 14 Intelligence Company. Posted to South County Armagh, 4 Field Survey Troop was given the task of performing surveillance duties. Nyrak was the liaison officer for the unit, the local British Army Brigade and the Royal Ulster Constabulary. He assumed duties outside of his official jurisdiction as liaison officer, including undercover operations. He apparently claimed to have visited pubs in Irish Republican strongholds, sung Irish rebel songs and acquired the nickname Danny Boy. He was driven to pubs by the future Conservative MP Patrick Mercer, who was then an army officer, former SAS warrant officer Ken Connor, who was involved in the creation of 14 Int, wrote of him in his book Ghost Force, had he been an SAS member, he would not have been allowed to operate in the way he did. We have been very concerned about the lack of checks on his activities. No one seemed to know who his boss was, 
and he appeared to have been allowed to get out of control, deciding himself what tasks he would do. Nyrak finished his tour with 14 Int in mid-1975 and returned to his regiment in London, having been promoted to captain on 4th of September 1975. Following a rise in violence culminating in the Kingsmill Massacre, the British Army increased their presence in Northern Ireland, and Nyrak accepted a post as liaison officer. On his fourth tour, Nyrak was liaison officer in the Bestbrook Mill. On the evening of 14th of May 1977, Nyrak drove alone to the Three Steps pub in Drummontee, a village in South County Armagh. He is said to have told regulars of the pub that he was Danny McAlane, a motor mechanic and member of the official IRA from the Irish Republican Ardoin area in North Belfast. The real McAlane, on the run since 1974, was killed by the Provisional IRA in June 1978 after stealing arms from the organisation. Witnesses say that Nyrak got up and sang a Republican song, The Broad Black Brimmer, with the band who were playing that night. At around 11.45pm he was abducted following a struggle in the pub's car park and taken across the border into the Republic of Ireland to a field in the Ravensdale Woods area in the north of County Louth. Following a violent interrogation during which Nyrak was allegedly punched, kicked, pistol whipped and hit with a wooden post, he was shot dead in a field. He did not admit his true identity. Terry McCormick, one of Nyrak's abductors, posed as a priest in order to try to elicit information by way of Nyrak's confession. Nyrak's last words, according to McCormack, were, Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. Claims that his body was disposed of by being put through a meat grinder have been dismissed as myth. His appearance sparked a large-scale search throughout Ireland. The hunt in Northern Ireland was led by Major H. Jones, who, as a colonel in the parachute regiment, was to be awarded a posthumous VC in the Falklands War. Jones was Brigade Major of HQ3 Infantry Brigade. Nyrak and Jones had become friends, and Nyrak would sometimes eat supper at the Jones household. After a four-day search, the Garda Shirkana confirmed to the IUC they had reliable evidence of Nyrak's killing. An additional spotlight broadcast on the 19th of June 2007 claimed that his body was not destroyed in a meat grinder, as alleged by an unnamed IRA source. McCormick, who had been on the run in the States for nearly 30 years because of his involvement in the killing, was told by a senior IRA commander that he was buried on farmland and reburied elsewhere. The location of the body's resting place remains a mystery to this day. Nyrak is one of three IRA victims whose graves have never been revealed and who are collectively known as the disappeared. The cases are under review by the Independent Commission for the Location of Victims' Remains. On the 13th of February 1979, Nyrak was possibly awarded the George Cross. We have on display in the museum a small head and shoulders study in oils of Robert Nyrak in tunic order, along with an excerpt from his George Cross citation which reads, His exceptional courage and acts of the greatest heroism in circumstances of extreme peril show devotion to duty and personal courage second to none. Also on display is a printed handkerchief which belonged to Robert Nyrak and it carries the motif of the Ulster Volunteer Force. In our reserve collection we have his service dress uniform as well as other items of uniform. So I think that's where we'll leave it for this week. 
I hope you've enjoyed hearing about two very different Grenadier officers who served in very different circumstances, both with bravery and distinction. There might be a bit of a gap before the next podcast, as I have to go into workshops for a bit of an operation, but rest assured I will climb back behind the microphone as soon as I can thereafter. If you've enjoyed the podcast, then do leave us a review and make sure you have subscribed to receive every episode. If you would like to support the work we are doing during lockdown, then please go to our website at www.theguardsmuseum.com and look for the Support Us button where you can leave a donation which would be most helpful. I have been Andrew Wallace and this has been episode 18 of Bearskins, Bayonets and Bravery, Notes from the Guards Museum. So, until next time, goodbye and God bless. Now, turn to your right and salute. Dismiss. Up, down and get away. Yeah.